Moss Hollow, Episode 18, The Book. The cabin is still. No one is here, but there are whispers. I search for the midwife. The sun sets in the window frame, and smoke curls upward from a missing pipe. The quilts are neatly folded across the backs of wooden chairs. The bed is made. The buckets are empty. Lacey? Something compels me toward the wood stove. The stone behind has smudged evidence of many years of use. As it gets dark, I light an oil lamp and then kneel to open the damper. I stack pieces of kindling inside. I feel as if I've done this before. The flame grows easily and the warmth comforts me. When I add a larger piece of wood, a centipede crawls from under the disturbed pile. The pipe above me creaks as if it hasn't felt heat in a while. The fire pulls my gaze. I can't bring myself to close it. The flickering light casts a slow pulse onto the floor. There's writing on the floor. On the wooden boards under the stove, there's something scrawled in charcoal. Dad. His eyes are warm. The details in his face are younger than I remember. He speaks, but I don't hear his voice. When his mouth opens, embers burn between his lips. Dad, tell me. He points to the stove. Bending carefully to the floor and avoiding the heat, I focus on one word at a time. Sator. Arepo? Fire grows. Black smoke billows from within. Tenet? Opera? The fire leaps and spreads viciously, melting the edges of the stove and spewing sparks onto my skin. <laughs> Anna, wake up. Lacey! I push myself up from the grass, totally stiff. I blink my eyes and wipe off dried tears with my dirty hands. Meeting her eyes, she's terrified. What happened? What's wrong? She's clutching the ear of corn. The edges are black, and her hand is stained with soot. She looks up. From the ground, I turn behind me to follow her gaze. It's the rowan tree, but it's... Did we do this? I ask her. She shakes her head and motions with her hands. We arrived. Boom. And the tree was like this. Everything floods back to me. Lacey gave me her voice. We shielded ourselves from the wave of darkness using the corn spirit. By her side is the bottle, with the mullen and feverfew weakly writhing against the glass. I reach out for her hand limply. She takes it with tears in her eyes. Are you okay? She looks at me, but doesn't answer. My heart squeezes. I can tell she's on the verge of giving up. Lacey, you did it. You saved us. I remember thinking of the rowan tree. It's been guarding the book for me. <gasps> the book! I clutch the grass and the roots to stand, but my body is still weak. On shaking legs, I search for the book. I don't see it nearby. What about my backpack? I look back at Lacey, who gives me a hopeless stare. I lean against the tree. It's half dry, half rotting, with branches broken. Some of it is black from smoke. 
It's dead. Did the darkness sweep over it trying to find us? Or did we kill it with our flame when we brought ourselves here? Or did this happen long ago and we're just discovering it? I rest my head against the bark, gripping a knot in the trunk. Everywhere I go, I bring pain and hardship and mess. It's one thing for me to suffer on my own. I'm the one who lost Claire and decided to go after her. But it's another thing to drag others into it and get them harmed along the way. Lacey, the librarian, the Rowan spirit. It's not here. Say that again. She looks at me, her eyes pleading, but with a guarded face. It's not here. <laughs> I can hear you. She cracks a broken smile. You look like hell. <laughs> so do you. <laughs> Something in me breaks, crushed by guilt and sadness, and seeing the look on her face. I struggle to stand. The tree supports me as Lacey approaches and wraps me in a tight hug. It's not your fault. I grip her as if she's going to leave me again. I don't have any tears left to cry, but my stomach tenses and I'm shaking. How are we going to find Claire without the book? And how are we going to escape the darkness much longer? The tree is a realization of our future. An omen. We're not giving up. Not yet. Don't think like that. Suddenly, I remember what Lacey said when we were eating sandwiches outside the general store. We need to get out ahead of it. We only have three of the plant spirits with us, but somehow we need to set a trap. Draw it out. Otherwise, the darkness, this thing, whatever it is, will be waiting for us at the crossroads. We have four. I pull back with a confused look. She turns to grab the bottle and hands it to me. That's two. Then the corn. That's three. Inside the backpack, she removes the camera and wipes it on her pant leg, then pulls out a squished, dripping, tied cloth. The onion. Yeah, that's four. <gasps> oh no, the branch. Lacey, there was a, a branch. A branch I pulled from this tree a while ago. I had it with me when... I remember hanging onto it on the horse, but I don't remember anything after that. She shakes her head. That's okay, we'll figure something out. I turn to the tree again. I close my eyes and feel the trunk with my fingers. There's no response. No electricity or pulsing like I usually feel. I peel off some of the bark and close it in my palm to see if I can feel anything from it. In the bottle, the spirits churn, but it's a struggle. I place them close to the trunk but the churn slows to almost stillness. How can we revive it? How are we supposed to bring the spirit with us if it's... Lacey calmly takes the bottle, staring intently at the spirits inside. She lowers it to the ground, and they begin flipping over again, like fish out of water. She sets it against the base of the tree. I use this tree to find you. We can try to use it again. Look. The spirits activate with a stronger pulse. I can feel them. The grass bends and dirt shifts under us. The roots deep under the soil are alive. Lacey, your foot. The roots in her foot twist in acknowledgement. The Rowan spirit pulls our attention downward through the teeming earth, the layers of silt and clay, the coiling of worms. 
the root tips searching for cool drink. As the plant spirits on the surface dance and vibrate, Lacey and I feel something within us creeping through our muscles and joints. Lacey's neck has green veins running from her mouth to her chest. They're faint, but I can see it in both of us now, the green under my fingernails and veins in my wrist. Our bodies have changed. I feel the energy of the roots more than I ever have before. They're guiding us like the signalmen said they would. Lacey's eyes are darkening. We look at each other, examining our minor changes. I start to feel thirsty again. My skin feels fibrous, like reeds or sugarcane. I'm too scared to look at my wound. What if I don't like what I see on the inside? Instead, I place my hands into the grass and she joins me. Rowan spirit, help us find the book. Help us call the roots. The moss glows as brightly as our time at the midwife's cabin. The roots surge through the dirt toward town. The tendrils of roots force their way through the asphalt and rip through the road. The roots call on the other plants nearby. Binding together under the abandoned houses, they rush like a tide to the surface, ripping through porch steps and pulling at telephone poles. It takes my breath away. As the roots fly uphill under the surface, we grab our things and breathlessly follow. As we help each other up the road, glimmers of the strike return. Men yell and we hear gunshots, but they're distant, like from a dream. I know the book is back at the strike, it must be, but I trust the roots and where they're taking us. We arrive at the tree line. The road continues through an arch of late summer trees, heavy with leaves. Walking into the shaded woods, the roots start to slow, but the trees reassure us we're in the right place. We've only been walking 15 minutes, but my body is struggling to walk. Lacey's exhausted too. She sees something ahead and slowly lowers her pack without breaking her gaze. It's as if we're at a graveyard and she's moving with reverence. We're at the creek. The roots finally stop at the base of a tree where a man sits with a rag. He's washing his hands in the water. The creek is bright orange from the coal runoff. He's either ignoring it or our time and place is blending with his. It's the man who had the poultice. He lived. We watch him scrunch water out of a rag and sling it over his shoulder. Then he turns his face to the sky with a look that touches the kind of exhaustion you feel after death. Despite scrubbing, his hands are still dirty. I don't want to disturb him. I don't even know if he'd be able to see me again. I lose track of time. Watching him struggle to find peace in solitude reminds me of me, shifting my body, trying to stay busy. He takes something from his shirt pocket and looks down at it for a while, holding it close. He fidgets with it, turning it over in his hands. My curiosity has me craning my neck. Then he throws it into the creek. It's a small book. He coughs again, this time really raspy and heavy. When he catches his breath, he splashes water on his face and prepares to stand. The roots beneath us are charged with slow, drumming energy. It needs to be you that talks to him. I want to shake my head, to leave him alone. We've already ruined his privacy, but I know she's right. With a look of approval, I take the bottle with me and sit beside him. 
He looks me up and down, unsurprised. Huh. Are you a ghost? No. Are you an angel, then? No. Why you come to talk to me? We came to the same place. You come to chastise me for throwing my Bible? No. My green veins are likely showing. You must think I'm a troubled spirit. I have something for you. It helped me recently. Besides, I borrowed something similar from you before. I pull the fever few carefully from the bottle. In my survival guide, it mentioned it helps with aches. And, well, reducing fever. But using my instinct, it seems like this is the plant spirit he must need. I pick off a couple flowers and drop them into his palm. Hold them. Are you ready for what's next? For a long time, he doesn't say anything. He gently rolls them between his fingers like a rosary. Then he clutches them to his chest. He looks up at me and says, There's one more thing. Before I go. Yes? There's a little girl been missing. About eight years old. Daughter of a friend of mine. I don't know if you can... Yes. I hope so. After what we've been through. He stares into the Orange Creek, no longer hiding his grief from me. I'll find her. I promise. He whispers a solemn thank you and turns to me when he's ready. He offers the flowers back to me, but I place my hand in his as he fades away past the veil. He takes the flowers with him and leaves my hand cold. The roots push mud and silt up from the creek bed. This water has taken more than one man's grief. It's taken pain and anger, refuse, and things people want hidden. This water makes me feel nauseous. Then, in the churn of dirt and orange stain, I spot the corner of the book. Lacey! We hurry to claw it out of the ground. It feels sick in our hands, because it's not a book. It's a breathing entity. I wipe the sand from its pages, and it sends a faint pulsing signal. It's survived in the creek bed somehow. What in the fresh Jumanji hill? What if we can't use it? What if the pages are clogged? What if we can't recall the plant spirits from inside it? I should have never left it. It needs fresh water. It needs to be clean. It needs to drink. It's been poisoned. Lacey, do you have a, a water bottle or something? She shakes her head. Even if I had my own backpack, I wouldn't even begin to try filtering the water from this creek. I have an idea. I pull the quilt towards us, still damp from the rain. I flip the book open in Lacey's hands and wring the fabric as hard as I can above the book. I'm able to get a small drip, but not much more. The book breathes. <sighs> Plant spirits, please help us purge what doesn't belong. Stained water begins to ooze from the pages. Mud and particles seep from the spine. It's slow, but it's working. I keep doing this, pulling from new squares of fabric as I wring it out. I feel bad getting the quilt filthy, but Lacey is as determined as I am to cleanse the book. When it seems a little clearer, we flip it to examine it. Oh, the spine is ruined. It looks like part of it burned. I stare at it hopelessly. 
I failed the librarian. She entrusted this to us. Now look at it. How are we supposed to use it now and get back to the crossroads? Finally, tears are welling in my eyes. Not yet. Don't give up yet. She finds a flat rock to sit on, and she digs into her backpack. She pulls out the sewing kit, then finds a dark strip of fabric. It's the bandage she tore from her shirt for me. The midwife cleaned it and pressed it. I had forgotten all about it. I bring her the book and sit beside her as she threads the needle. I feel like an anxious little kid whose stuffed toy got ripped and needs mending. I can tell she's tired and her fingers aren't as nimble as she's willing them to be, but she manages. I fold my knees to my chest and watch. She folds the fabric at the edges to give it some extra strength, and she pulls the thread thoughtfully with each stitch. In this moment, when I don't sense humming or danger, when I'm with a friend who's helping me, I do finally feel some peace. Just as I start to nod off, thinking of the grieving man, she says, There. It looks great for being sewn quickly. I didn't know she could do that. I wish she had her voice back. Her real one, anyway. Finally, we can feel the plant spirits inside. I try adding the feverfew first to see if it will accept a new one. Weakly, it lets the stems sink into the page, a green ripple glowing softly after it. I can't explain our connection to the book, but I feel its struggle in my own body. More and more, I feel connected to the plants, and I don't know if I should be reassured or terrified. Next, we flip a page and add the mullen, its soft leaves almost dancing into the book. Then the onion, and finally the burnt ear of corn. I feel a sense of relief when it goes in. It feels like the blackened edges are cooled with water. Lacey has already quickly packed everything up, ready to move. Time to get to the crossroads. We'll make a plan on the way. How do we know we have everything? And isn't there a plant spirit that can get your voice back? She hides her sadness and looks forward, hiking the backpack onto her shoulder. You can hear me this way. It's good enough for now. I have so many questions bubbling up, but I can only manage to ask her, why though? Why now? This means something. She starts to walk up toward the road. I follow, not wanting to cause an argument and also to get away from the creek. There's something unfinished. I know in my heart we're not ready. My veins are raised and I feel thirsty. Lacey, wait, please. She turns, but only because I think she assumes I'm too weak to walk as fast as her. But no, she says, there's something we didn't do. I know. What is it? I hold out my hand for the book again, running my hand along its new spine and its stained edges. Plant spirits, what are we missing? Show us what to do. The book flips open and the pages stir. Lacey stands beside me, looking like she's ready to snap it shut if it does something sudden. My neck feels swollen, and I can feel where the roots had grown in the back of my head. I feel what Lacey feels. I try to remember to breathe as the plant spirits overwhelm my head. 
Our hands are smooth, but our nails dirty with green pulp. Our mouths are dry. The book shakes, and I accidentally drop it on the ground. Lacey grabs my hand. The book writhes in the dirt. When I look up at her again, her eyes are completely glazed in vibrant dark green, and delicate long leaves are hidden in her hair, sprouting from her scalp. In our hands, liquid pulp emerges as if our skin is stem. Small, intricate white petals bloom from thin green wisps by my ears. The book calls us. I shove the book closed with my foot. Lacey's roots have grown twice in size. She's struggling to stay normal. I pull the flowers from my hair and furiously wipe the pulp from my hands. The book is still now that it's closed. I know why we can hear each other's thoughts, why we have to stay together. We're the same. Lacey? Try, I tell her. If you gave me your voice, I can give you mine. Trent? <laughs> it worked. Then, with a voice that can clear across every valley near Moss Hollow, she says, You're right the fuck on time! Moss Hollow is written and performed by Melinda Beck. Original music by Kendall Winter. Mountain Foley by Melody Parrish. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.